Well, I was ashamed of myself all over again many times this past week. You want to know why I was ashamed? Even if you say no, you still have to listen to the sermon. Well, I was ashamed because this building, this sanctuary, every year is on Historic Charleston Foundation tour of homes and gardens. And I'm the tour guide for that tour. And so as people come in, I tell them the history of this building. And part of that history is telling them the story of how this building, just a little over a year and a half ago, was going to be purchased and gutted and turned into a private residence. You knew that, didn't you? Did you know that? So you didn't know that. Well, the potential buyer, in order to do that, needed a change in the zoning. And so we were hopeful that the zoning board would refuse that request and that the potential buyer would go away because the state Supreme Court had said you can't create a hardship for yourself. And the potential buyer said, well, it's a hardship for me on this building with the current zoning, please change it. Well, we were thinking if you don't own a building, how can it be a burden or a hardship? So we were confident that they would not change the zoning. And we had people praying here around the world. As we went to the uh, to the zoning board meeting, a group stayed right here to, to be in prayer about it. So the end of the story is that the zoning board, after about a two-minute deliberation, voted to allow the zoning change for that potential buyer. Now, what should the reaction have been from a meek, humble, gentle, pastor, full of faith? Yeah, well, whatever you're thinking, not so much. (laughs) Because I was furious. The law was on our side. How could the zoning board do this? I didn't understand what was God was doing. How could God allow this to happen? And I probably should have started praying then, but you know what I did instead? Along with other people that I'm not going to now publicly uh, implicate, we started making plans to go to the state Supreme Court. That's what we were going to do. Obviously, we are here today. This building continues to be a sanctuary, and we continue to have the opportunity to be a gospel presence here in downtown Charleston. But a year later, it became clear to us why the zoning board made the decision they made. When we had the opportunity to rent part of the building next door to raise some money to help pay the mortgage and to help do the renovations around here, they couldn't undo the zoning that they had already changed. And so when we had someone who wanted to rent, we had no battle to fight. It was all done. All we had to do was say, move on in and give us the check. And that's what happened. And so God used the this... Lord, why this that we didn't understand in a way that was for our good, our great good. And so I'm ashamed that I didn't trust while the this was happening. Because you know what? That's what our lives are made of. All of our lives are made of the thises that we don't understand. Why this happens. How this happens. And so who are we? Who are you? Who am I in those this moments? When they are happening, how do we react in the moment before we know the why or the how? If we never know the why or the how. See, you and I should be humble people. We should. You and I, in our vast wisdom, believe it or not, we don't know everything. Therefore, you and I should trust the one who does. Because what we don't understand, what we don't plan... What we can't anticipate can be 
for our, our greatest good. And that's what we'll see as we come to this passage this morning, talking about the triumphal entry. If you have your Bible open to John chapter 12, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. The story that we've read of this triumphal entry, your triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As we come now together around your word, we pray for uh, the blessing uh, of understanding that your spirit can grant to us. Father, we pray for the transformation uh, that you want to see happen to take place in our lives because we've been in your word together. Particularly, Lord, we pray that you would make us people of great trust in you and in your good and perfect plan. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. If you look with me again in verse 16, we read there that at first the disciples did not understand all of this. So what was the all of this that the disciples did not understand? Well, it was the parade. This huge crowd of people who have come out from Jerusalem to escort Jesus back into the city. They're there waving their palm branches, hailing Jesus as king. 
Some are spreading their garments on the ground before him. Some are going ahead of him. Some are coming behind him, shouting, crying out, praising, maybe even singing all of them the same song. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the disciples can't understand it. Who got all of these people together? Who organized this parade? Every parade has to have an organizer. You know, you've got to get the, the route mapped out. You've got to get the floats coordinated. It takes weeks and weeks of preparation. Even flash mobs are not spontaneous. You know that, of course, right? Flash mobs are not spontaneous. Talented singers don't just show up at the same place at the same time and spontaneously stand up in the food court at the mall and start singing the Hallelujah Chorus at Christmas. It doesn't happen. It may look spontaneous, but every detail is planned. Who organized this parade? Who organized this flash mob? It wasn't the disciples. They didn't understand all this. And if the disciples didn't understand what was going on, who did? And if the disciples aren't the ones who organized the parade, who did? His dear friend Lazarus couldn't have been the one that organized the celebration for Jesus just a few days before he was dead. He was wrapped up, mummy style, in grave clothes, and he was lying in a tomb. It would have been hard for him to get the word out, understandably. It wasn't Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. The night before, they had thrown a big dinner party for Jesus. You remember it? It's the party where Mary broke that very expensive alabaster jar and poured out that very, very expensive perfumed oil on Jesus' feet. So if it wasn't Jesus' closest friends, the disciples, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, if they didn't do it, who did? You know what? If Jesus can speak to the wind and the waves, when they're wild, when they're thrashing about, and if he can say to them, be still, be quiet, then why could he not speak to the hearts of people saying, get up, go out, and shout aloud? Why would that be any more difficult, especially if it accomplishes his purpose? Not if it's going to lead to something really, really, really good for them. And it will. And then there is more to the all this that the disciples don't understand. Why is Jesus just sitting on that donkey receiving all of this praise? Why is he allowing people to shout out, Hosanna, save us? Why is he allowing them to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Why is Jesus just sitting there while they proclaim him to be the king of Israel? They can't understand it because always in the past, their whole experience with Jesus, he's always said, shh, be quiet. Don't tell anybody who I am. A leper came to Jesus and he said, if you are willing to to cleanse me, you, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I'm willing. And he healed the leper and he was clean. And then he said to the leper, see that you don't tell anyone. People brought a friend to Jesus who was deaf and could barely speak. And Jesus put his fingers in the man's ear. And then he touched the man's tongue. And the man could hear. And his tongue was loosed to speak. And Jesus told everyone who saw it, he commanded them not to tell anyone. Jairus had a 12-year-old daughter. She was sick. 
So Jairus went to get Jesus to bring him back to his house so he could heal his little girl. But on the way, the little girl died. And so when Jesus got to the home, people were weeping and wailing because the little girl was dead. And Jesus said, be quiet. Stop weeping. Stop wailing. The little girl is not dead. She only sleeps. But everybody knew that she was dead, and so they laughed at Jesus, and they made fun of him. But Jesus took that little girl's mom and dad into the room with Peter and John, and he took that little girl by the hand, and he said, My child, get up. And her spirit returned at once, and she stood up. And then Jesus ordered her astonished parents not to tell anyone what had happened. When the disciples... Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? Peter answered for them, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. They knew who he was clearly. And Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus took Peter and James and John high up on that mountain. And when he got there, he was transfigured before their eyes. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. And Moses and Elijah appeared there too. What an amazing, incredible sight these disciples had seen. But on the way back down the mountain, what did Jesus tell the disciples? Don't tell anyone what you have seen. All these miraculous things happened. And always Jesus said, don't tell anyone. The disciples are the one who distributed the food to more than 5,000 people that Jesus had miraculously provided from those five small loaves and those two fish. Well, the people saw that miracle that Jesus had performed and they were determined to make him king. Jesus knew that they would try to make him king by force, so what did Jesus do? He slipped away. He retreated. He took refuge in the mountain. And so it's no wonder that the disciples here on this day, they don't understand all of this. It's completely out of character for Jesus. What's this all about? They don't understand, but here's the thing. The disciples don't have to understand. The people in the parade don't have to understand because God understands. And that's what's so important. He will use what they don't understand for their good and for his glory. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But before we see that, you and I have to ask ourselves, honestly, in light of that little story I told you before, myself included, what needs to happen in our lives to make us understand or realize that we don't have to understand everything that God does? What needs to happen in our lives to make us realize that we don't have to understand everything that God does? To trust that he is a God who loves his people. A God who works everything for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even if we never know the end of the story. Even if we never know why. Even if we never know how. Can we still trust? Well, look at what happened next. What this event precipitated. It's in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, Greek interjection, how the whole world has gone after him, exclamation point. The Pharisees are upset. And so just as we had to define the this that the disciples didn't understand, now we have to figure out what the this was that was getting the Pharisees nowhere. 
Well, the this that was getting the no, the Pharisees nowhere was this. There was a man once. I love telling all these stories about Jesus. He had a shriveled hand, and he was in the synagogue, and it was a Sabbath. And so the Pharisees were watching Jesus to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath, which was against the law. And sure enough, Jesus said to the man, stick out your hand. And he did. And Jesus healed him. And after Jesus did that, Scripture said that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Plotting against him, that's part of the this. On another occasion, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus who had been caught in adultery. And they said to him, you know, this woman has been caught in adultery and the law of Moses says that we must stone her. Now, Jesus, what do you say? And it said that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, trapping him. That was part of the this that the Pharisees were doing. On another occasion, Jesus healed a man. He had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years he had been an invalid. And Jesus went to this man and he said, your sins are forgiven. Uh, get up, take up your mat and walk. And so the man did it. Well, so here he is, he's walking. Hasn't walked for 38 years, but he's stopped by the Jews who say to him, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? That's against the law. Forget why he's walking. And the man said, well, the guy that, that told me to get up and walk, he told me to carry my mat. Who told you that? The man that healed me. They tried to get Jesus, but Scripture says that he slipped away into the crowd. And so they sought to kill him more. That was their plan. Another occasion, Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. And he cries out, you know me, you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. And you knew to, you do know him. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him. But no one laid a hand on him, though they tried because his time had not yet come. Another instance, Jesus stands in a loud voice and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Another instance, Jesus proclaims, the father is in me and I am in the father. And again, they tried to seize him, but Jesus escaped their grasp. Jesus told the story, the parable of the wicked vineyard workers. The vineyard owner sent three servants, three different occasions to to get some of the harvest from the vineyard. But each servant, the wicked tenants beat and sent away empty-handed. And so the owner of the vineyard decided he would send his very own son. So he sent his very own son to collect some some of the fruit of the vine. But in this case, they cast the son out and they killed him. That's the story Jesus told. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Jesus immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. And so keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Now this is the this that was getting them nowhere. All these attempts that the Pharisees had done to try to entrap him, all the plots to kill him, all the attempts to seize him, every time they were foiled. And all of this was getting them nowhere. 
They were completely ineffective in all of their attempts. And maybe it wouldn't have been so bad for them if they'd had just a a little bit of success, if they had just gotten a little somewhere. But they were not making even a little progress. And so on this day, this Palm Sunday, as they watched from the walls of the city of Jerusalem, or maybe they watched through the gate, and they saw this enormous crowd of people going out to Jesus, a crowd so big they called it the whole world, they realized that their power, their authority over the people was meaningless. Even though they ranted and raved and disapproved and threatened, still the people flocked to Jesus. And so they were full of rage, full of frustration. And you know what an encouragement it should be, this should be, to you and to me. Jesus was invincible until he determined that it should be otherwise. Jesus was invincible until he determined that it should be otherwise. Untrappable, unstoppable, unseizable, as he mysteriously slips away into the crowds and evades their grasp, every evil they planned for him could not touch him. And so it is for our lives. You know, whatever it is that comes into our lives, it has to pass by God first. Did you realize that? He's a sovereign God. Everything that comes into our lives must get past God first. Evil, evil is in this world. The same kind of evil and the same kind of people that sought to destroy the most perfect, wonderful, kind, compassionate, generous, loving, merciful person that ever walked this earth. Evil people tried to destroy him. Suffering is still in this world, but it can only do to us what God allows it to do. And so we look to God, you and I, when we're suffering. We look to God when we experience the effects of evil and we remember that God is carrying out his plan and that he will use everything that happens to us as part of his perfect plan for us. And we, as children of God and believers in Christ, it's going to end up for our good and for his glory. And that's how you and I, as children of God, we are not broken because we trust that God is at work. And that's what we see happening here, this parade, this triumphal entry that no human hand arranged. It's the very spark that ignites the greatest and the final rage of these religious leaders. Jesus must be stopped They will not be foiled again. Jesus must die. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Look at the hand of God in this. In their rage, though they don't know it, the Pharisees prophesy the truth about what their evil deed is going to accomplish. Look in verse 19. They say, look how the whole world has gone after him. And immediately in verse 20, now there were some Greeks who came and said, sir, we would like to see Jesus. You see, the whole world has gone after Jesus. Not just the Jews who rush out to meet him, but now the Greeks are coming, desiring to see him. 
We never find out whether or not Jesus uh, sees these Greek guys or not. Scripture doesn't say that he said, come on in, or that he had any interaction with them at all. But what we do know is the response that they're coming produced in Jesus. Look at his response in verse 23. The Greeks are at the door, and Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You know, the Greeks at the door remind Jesus that God is working all this together for this one moment in time. The glory of the cross, the crucifixion. It's unexpected. It's not understood how glory could come from a cross, which was an instrument of torture. How a moment considered to be the lowest moment in the life of any other person hanging naked on a cross could ever become a moment of glory and triumph. But it became that for Jesus. Glory and triumph because he did it. Because Jesus went through with the plan. He didn't have to. He could have called the angels to rescue him, but he didn't. He didn't deserve to die, but he died anyway. In fact, he wanted to be crucified. Scripture says, we read it this morning, that when the days grew near for him to be taken up, he set his face. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined. He was determined that he would go to the cross. That's why he had come for this hour. And so everything is working together to bring about this moment. Bringing Lazarus back from the dead. Jesus could have healed him, but he let him die so he could raise him to life. A picture of the life that he would give to thousands and thousands and thousands of people who had placed their faith in him. He let Lazarus die so he could bring him back to life and infuriate the religious leaders. He received the praise the adoration of this huge crowd of people on Palm Sunday, infuriating the religious leaders, inspiring them, and compelling them to move forward with the evil plan that they plotted to do. Because the time had come. Verse 27, Jesus calls it, This hour, this time, God is bringing it about. Look in verse 24, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It bears much fruit. And so these Greeks who have come to see Jesus are just a crack in the door. The door that's going to be knocked off its hinges as a flood of people like them come and place their faith in Christ. That's why he came. That was the purpose of his life and his death. Verse 27, Jesus says, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this very reason and for this hour I came. And so you and I can never forget that Jesus agreed to come to earth. He wanted to come. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. See, it doesn't really mean as much if you don't want to do something. You know, it's one thing if my children rake the yard and bag all the leaves and wash all the cars and clean the kitchen and clean their bedrooms, all because I say I'm going to take away the car and kick them out if they don't. It's much more meaningful when they look around and see the need and do something about it on their own. Well, that's what Jesus, the Son, did. He looked around 
and he saw our great need, and it was tremendous. And he wanted to do something about it. So in some conversation that the father had with the son that we are not privy to, something transpired between them where the son said, I will go help them. He wasn't forced to go. And what if the father knew that the son would not or should not be stopped? And what if that's where the love of the father comes in, allowing the son to do what he was determined to do, to come and save us? What they both knew that he needed to do because such was their love for us. So the father sends the son and he sends the spirit to tend to Jesus while he is in this dark and dangerous place. Well, Jesus is now eager. He's eager to finish the work that he has come to do. Though in his humanity, he's not looking forward to the cross in his divinity. He was eager as a son of God to provide the salvation of which you and I are in such desperate need, eager to see the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Lazaruses raised to life and released from their grave clothes. Jesus is eager to get on to the cross because of the life that will come from it. Look in verse 32. Jesus says, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And by this he meant the kind of death that he was to die. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus says, but I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. Is it any wonder then that Jesus was eager for the cross? Is it any wonder then why this flash mob appeared? Any wonder why the Pharisees were furious? We are not in control. God is, and his spirit moves powerfully to accomplish his purpose. After the moment passed, in fact, seven weeks after the moment passed, about seven weeks, when Jesus was glorified, then the disciples could look back. Then they could understand what was going on, what they didn't understand in the moment, why it had to happen. They could see then that it was for their good and that it pointed to the glory and to the power of the sovereign God who worked all these things together to bring about the cross, to bring about the crucifixion, to bring about the salvation of all who would believe. God is the same today for you and me as we celebrate Palm Sunday. We remember that God is at work in our lives, moving, orchestrating, coordinating the details putting them together, sometimes in ways we don't understand, sometimes in ways we don't like, but in ways that will be for our good and for His glory. And all we need to know to to believe that is to look at the cross and know that it is true. What God did to bring it about so that Jesus could die for people like you and like me and so that people like you and like me could have life, And so people like you and like me could entrust that life to him. That's the power of the cross in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again that you are a sovereign God. And that means that you reign over and are in control of all things. And that includes everything that happens in our lives. Father, I pray that you would help us be people who willingly and eagerly 
submit to your will, that we would be humble people, Lord, acknowledging that we don't know everything. We think we can figure it out. We think we know the reasons. We think we know what's good for us or what's best for us. But Lord, you know far better. And for those of us who love you and are called by you, the plan that you have for us is for our good and for your glory. So I pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in that, that we would look for your hand in it. Father, that we would be eager learners of the lessons that you have to teach us as we go through these things. Father, we do thank you that you demonstrated your love on the cross. Thank you for all that you put in place to make that moment in time happen so that you could die and we could live. We thank you for that now in Jesus' name. Amen.